God. And yet he overcomes. He overcomes sin. He overcomes darkness. He overcomes hate. He overcomes time. He overcomes tyranny. And he overcomes you and I. Man, that is a good thing. That I can't resist the Lord enough to refute this grace. Now, it was expensive. What, what He gives to us freely cost something. God gave up His Son in exchange for that gift. Man, it, it cost a lot. Parents in the room, could you imagine exchanging your kid for the benefit and aid of others? Wow, what a thing. This is why we go to church. This is why we fellowship together. This is why we're here this morning to honor God for an expensive gift. And He gives it to us at no charge. Can we pray about that this morning? Lord, we thank You for Your Word. It is good. We thank You for Your Son. He is holy. And we thank You, Lord, for Your character. For it is forgiving. You overcome us, Lord. Our resistance um, is no match for the tidal wave of love that you poured out on the earth. We thank you for these things. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you guys so much for coming today. My name is Beck. I am the, the teacher here, teaching pastor within the uh, staff of our church. I haven't been... Uh, I haven't been to church in a while. That's not what I meant. I haven't had the opportunity to teach here in, uh, in quite some time. Alex has obviously uh, taken over and done a, a, a great job with that as the leader of this church. And I've been preaching in the Springs and some other places. But it feels good to be home. You know what I mean? Just it, It's always nice to, to have that. What I'd like to do before we start is, um, is can every veteran just stand up? Every, yeah, we got some people up top and, and some in the back. Listen here. Uh, this country was not founded on blood and ammunition or uh, founding fathers with uh, pens and ink making declarations. This country was founded on bravery and service. And we don't have within ourselves the, the proper wording or the, Alec, where are you? Get over here. Be seen. Sorry. He's a Marine. Happy birthday. Uh, that we don't have a thank you card big enough or some salute that properly identifies or express our, our thanks to you. Um, but we do have the highest level of honor. And, and that, for whatever it's worth, we, we offer to you uh, gentlemen and women and men all around the country who have served this country with bravery and, and service. And so uh, with that, we, we, we say thank you. You guys are deserving of that. Now, I'll tell you what. If there are three people in this church that like that less, um, there isn't. Then those are the men that are standing because they're not about uh, being seen. They're, they're about getting the job done. So I appreciate that, gentlemen. That's good for you. And I, I think important for us to do, not only in the church, uh, but all around America as well. Today's sermon is entitled, White Tree Bridge. And, oh, there it is. Thank you. Uh, the Table of Grace. In the 11th chapter of the book of Romans, we've been 
going through the book of Romans for, I don't know, a year maybe? A little less than? Oh yeah, very good, thank you. I, sorry, I have a note, and I had a friend who was supposed to remind me. I forgot to tell the first service. Because of Veterans Day, in honor of them, we will not have evening service tonight. This is not an opportunity for you to just like shell yourself up in your house. My hope is that you, the congregation, uh, would spend time in the community or with each other, uh, hanging out and, and uh, doing something patriotic, maybe. Eat something red, white, and blue. So just so you know, service announcement, don't come tonight because no one will be here. Uh, Back to the sermon, the table of grace, uh, Romans chapter 11, we've been in Romans for quite some time now. The last three chapters, Paul, the author of Romans, has been discussing the Jews, the nation of Israel. Now this letter is more of an essay written to this church, uh, basically laying out the theology of Christianity. If you're a believer or a non-believer in the room and you want to figure out what does the Christian truly believe, especially in the early church, the book of Romans is your destination. It talks about uh, evidence and implications and all the, some of the stuff we're going to discuss today. But when he gets to the 9th and 10th and 11th chapter, he sort of takes a side rail. Now, for some of us, I don't think, are there any Jews in the room? Any ascetics with black hats or anything? <laughs> Uh, because there's no Jews in the room, we would say to ourselves, like, if there's any portion of scripture we could just sort of get over, it's a big book, you know, we got to get through it, let's get through the stuff that's unimportant. This would be the set of scripture to overlook. <sighs> Dare I say that's a big mistake <laughs> to do with any portion of scripture, specifically this one. I'd like to say to you this, the study of Israel brings more to light about our nature than we think. In other words, you're more Jewish than you realize, especially when it comes to our faith in Christ. I want to bring that out today uh, in, just, in just a little bit with the scriptures. Before we read the sermon, I want to maybe do something that we've never done here at ESS before that I, I think is really cool. Some of the people in first service know what's happening. Uh, in the month of November, I'm studying the history of the Reformation of the Church, their liberation from uh, Catholic tyranny uh, at the time, and, and the receiving of God's Word, and, and a time in history when God's Word wasn't free to anybody. And so the Reformation is this amazing time in, in history I've been studying in November because it is the 500th anniversary of the Word being free for anybody to read. Wow. Man, that is so cool. As a result, I've been studying some of the, the, the traditions of our church in history, the early church. Some of the things they did were awesome. However, I don't know, money and sin and power and manipulation has kind of twisted these cool traditions into just cold, hard religion. Man, empty things. And so it's with that that I say to you, uh, one of the things they did in the time was to stand to honor the reading of the Word of God. Throughout all of history, since the beginning of time, the, the, the display of honor was uh, communicated in a movement of our body. Okay, either to prostrate down on the ground, you bow before a king, or to the standing, to the exalting, to the saying, you are worthy to stand up for. So in weddings and graduations and all these other things where you stand, somebody claps, stands and they clap, that is a sign of honor that has been carried throughout history. And something I would like to do today, to honor God's word by standing. Now, to make this a non-religious exercise, I'll caveat it with this. You don't have to, okay? So, like, don't get offended. This is just, it's just a thing we're doing. Is that okay? Okay, so why don't we stand together for the reading of God's word, if you so choose to do so. 
Romans chapter 11 verses 1 through 10 says this. I say then, God has not rejected his people. Has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I, I, and I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? This is the Lord speaking. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who will have not bowed their knee to Baal. Verse 5. In the same way then, there, also, uh, there has also come to be in the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, this is my favorite part, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Their eyes did not see, and their ears uh, not to hear not, uh, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Let's pray real quick. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray today that it, it, it increases on us. It, 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 like water through a crack, it, it just finds its way into the deepest part of our heart. Lord, I pray that we would be softened today to your word and the, the preaching of it. Father, I pray that your spirit would come and guide me through the sermon as well, that I have nothing to offer any man of any consequence or good. But Lord, you do. I pray, Lord, that you move quickly and abundantly today. And everybody said, amen and amen. You may be seated. I, I really appreciate that. Thanks for that little uh, uh, gesture there. Paul, in the book of Acts, was commissioned by the God, by the God, by God, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That was his mission. Who he remembers Acts or uh, Paul on a horse riding to Damascus, a city, and he is going to persecute the church. Lord knocks him off his horse, off his high horse, so to speak, and he is uh, receives the gospel, receives the word of God, and is commissioned by the Lord to suffer on his behalf and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, which is a non-Jew. That is his mission. But his heart is still with his people, the nation of Israel. And it's in the book of Romans that we see this mixture between what God has asked Paul to do and what his heart is really for. I shared this with the first service. I'm from a city called Pueblo. You ever heard of it? P-Town, stand up. I tell people, and I have for a long time, that Pueblo is a great city to be from, but it's hard for a, for a man to be in. And I remember telling uh, Johnny when he was uh, starting this whole movement and was talking about expanding the church up and down I-25 that he was going to send me to Pueblo. And one day when I concluded that this is what I wanted to do with my life, I said to him, Johnny, I will go to Pueblo if you make me, but man, please don't send me there. <laughs> 
since then, I've said, man, that's not, that's not good, Lord. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go, and, and Pueblo's a good place. But my mission may be sent to Denver or to Fort Collins or to one group of people, but I must confess, my heart is with the people of that city because I'm from there. It's the city that built me. It's the town that I know it smells and its corners and its streets and its, its traditions. That's my home. So I've been called to another place. Paul is dealing with this very conflict in himself. He says in Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 3, speaking about the Jews, he says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies, testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that myself be accursed, separated from God in Christ for the sake of my brethren. Another scripture says, his kinsmen, his people. Paul is saying, I would give up my relationship with Christ if those that I love would just receive grace. In chapter 10, he says something similar. Brethren, speaking to the Jews, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them, sorry, speaking to the Gentiles about the Jews, is for them in their salvation. It's for them to know God. He loves the Jews. And as a result, he wants them to love God. Paul's contention is this, that all would come to faith in Jesus apart from the works of the law. This great preacher um, in Scotland, if you're going to listen to another preacher, listen to a Scot. It just sounds more, is more better a word? <laughs> it's like, it's just more from heaven. You know what I mean? I can't do a Scottish accent. I think about like Sean Connery or whatever, like Jesus Christ. Like that, it just is I don't know what it is. But anyway, this is his quote. Uh, speaking about Paul in regard to uh, Romans chapter 11. He says, Paul emphasized from the beginning that the righteousness that occurs by faith in Jesus Christ is given to us by grace apart from the law. And yet, grace of God is justified to us and enables us to fulfill the law. He's saying the law that the Jews so coveted and, and toiled over and worked in to try and be righteous was never meant to be a means for salvation. In other words, you could obey the law perfectly. You weren't getting to heaven. That is a fact. It was a picture laid out by God to say this is the minimum standard for heaven and not a man can get there on his own. It was to show the Jews that they weren't able without him. Not that in some way there was something in them. If they obeyed some law, they would be seen as righteous. That is not true. However, if we receive the grace of God and the, and the, uh, the right to salvation by his work on the cross, our transformation leads us to perfect obedience of the law. And Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but... Fulfill it. It was misunderstood in Paul's day that he had been converted away from Judaism to Christianity and that his mission had now become to trample upon the law of God, to diminish the Jewish world and raise up Christ. He has never, ever said that. He's saying to you and to I and to the nation of Israel and all the Jews in his history, there is yet but one way to salvation. And that is through the cross. Jew Gentile, Martian, whatever. It is by faith in Jesus Christ alone that leads us to salvation. And no works of our own. 
Paul appeals to them from time to time throughout his ministry because he has a heart for these people. Why does he have such a heart for these people? Because he was one of them. Paul says at one time uh, in Philippians chapter 3 that my pedigree was greater than any Jew. He was a teacher of the Jews. I mean, this is like the highest level. But then on the other side, he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. <laughs> He's sort of stuck in between these two worlds. Because he is a great pedigree of the Jewish world, but he realizes in his persecution of the church and his, re his, his rejection of what God said to be true, he was a sinner like no other. And I believe that when we come to faith, we find the same to be true about us and our self-righteousness. This mixture of his burden and his mission lead him to make a case for the Jews. So he gets to chapter 9, and like a lawyer, he lays out evidence, giving a case for the Jews in truth. This is what God is saying about the Jews. He's setting the level straight. He's just clearing it all out so there's no confusion to this church in Rome that's filled with both Jew and Gentile. He's saying to them, this is the case I make for the Jews. And he starts in chapter 9, and he lays out, like a good lawyer would, a series of rhetorical questions. If you're a lawyer preparing a case, wouldn't it be good of you to predict what somebody was going to respond to a question you were going to ask? And then wouldn't it be better of you to even say, now I'm going to take that response and lead an implication a little further down the road? He's making his case. He says in uh, verse 9, but I ask. He says in in uh, uh, Chapter 10, verse 1, but I ask of you. He says in 11, verse 1 and 2, now I ask. He says in eleven nineteen. now I ask. He's putting these questions in front of this church that this letter is being read aloud to concerning their thinking. And it's leading to one major question. And the question is this. Can we turn to it? Maybe. Yep, right there. Verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? He's leading this logical debate. If the Jews have rejected God, and God is just, isn't it logical and right for God to judge the Jews? Shouldn't it be good for him to reject these rejecting people? You don't like me, I don't like you. Kind of a thing. Isn't that fair? Isn't that good of God? And they makes the case where everybody in the congregation through 9, 10, and 11 starting to say, like, he's making a pretty good case. But Paul's response is unbelievable. He says this, may it never be. Other texts in scripture, uh, different translations, depending on what kind of Bible you have, say this, by no means, God forbid, certainly not. He's saying, should God reject these people or has God rejected these people? No, by no means has he done this. Now, if you were in Rome, in the church, back in the day, and this letter was being read to you, you would say, well, wait, now I'm confused. You're making this case that God is just, and that it would be right for him to judge the Jews, but now he hasn't done it. Why? Through the next set of scripture, uh, verses 2 through 10, Paul takes this case and he gives a reason for his answer. May it never be. God forbid. In verses... Uh, 1 through 4, he lays out the evidence for this answer. Why may it never be? Let me give you some facts. In 5 and 6, you don't need to change the slide any more than that, it's good. In 5 and 6, he draws implications. Because of this evidence, we can conclude these things. And then he overarching in verse 7, creates a conclusion for all of it. And then so much like Paul, it's so true of him. He says, I'm going to back my conclusion up with scripture. But he doesn't use just any scripture. He doesn't just pull something out. He uses scripture from the Old Testament. 
The Testament, the, the, the scripture that the Jews just studied and mesmerized and knew inside and out and thought they were the keepers of understanding the word of God. He's saying to them, the very words you've been reading you don't understand and let me prove it to you. And so we're going to follow through the thinking of Paul today. Are we good? It's like 211 degrees in here, I'm sorry. When we buy this church, massive fan right there. Just in Jesus' name. Because I can't do this. I'm a big dude. Flannel. It didn't work. Okay, just moving on. So let's move to the evidence. If you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in 1, chapter 1, verse 1b through verse 4. If you don't, you can join on the screen. It says this, Paul, For I am too an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and they've torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response of him? I have kept myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. He gives this evidence in three parts. Here's the evidence for my answer. The first is personal testimony. Because I am a Jew. He's not saying it like, I am a Jew and I would never say that about my country. Like, I'm an American, I would never say America's bad because I'm an American. That's not the point here. He is his own, he's his own piece of evidence. He is his own testimony. He's saying, God has not rejected Israel because God has not rejected me. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, the most notable uh, member of the tribe of Benjamin, old Jewish tribe of the original 12, is Saul, the king of Israel. Paul's first name, his original name, Saul. He's saying, I have a pedigree in the Jewish tradition like no other, and God still gave me grace. God cannot reject the Israelites. God cannot reject the Jews because he has not rejected me. He says, I myself improve. Isn't this true for us? And I'll tell you what, that's my prayer. For those of you that think there's somebody that's too far gone, you better get that thinking out of your head. That is just not true. Our prayer can be, Lord, if you can save me, you can save them too. If transformation, there is no such thing as too late. In my ministry and in my life, I can't tell you the amount of time where you grab the hand of somebody who's dying and you see them in their, in their final breath give their life to the Lord. Now, is that the best way to do it? No, because life's way cooler with him. <laughs> Don't do it at the end, just because it's better for you. <laughs> but it is true. If the Lord, if you can save me, you can save them too. The second truth is a doctrinal fact. The first is a personal testimony. The second is an evidence of theology. This is a truth from the doctrine. Uh, in Ephesians 1 verse 4, it took me forever to find it last time. It was really embarrassing. I'm supposed to know my Bible, and I couldn't find the scripture. Ephesians 1, and as a side, I preached on it last week and still couldn't find it. That's not good. Ephesians 1 verse 4, uh, Paul is writing this, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that, he, um, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. God did not make us, specifically the Jews, and then later decide he would love us. God has loved you before the foundation of the world. As Johnny would say, you are not a mistake. 
That's a biblical fact. Now, what does this draw to be true for us? Maybe you could say it like this. God said in the beginning, as he looked upon you, his creation, it is good. You are good to him. Your sin is wretched and wrong and separates you from the righteousness of God. But you were created in his image. He says, this is a fact that you, the Jews, believe. And if he loves you, would he reject you? Like this. No, that is not true. God intends to do what he says he's going to do. You do not have a choice. You have a choice in receiving him, but he is going to have his way. In other words, all of the Jews will never be wiped off the, wor- uh, off the earth. Haven't we seen this in history? The Holocaust should not allow for any civilization that has experienced that kind of persecution to survive. And yet, here they are. Because they're stubborn old people, because they're survivors, get out of here, man. Because of the will of God said, I'm not going to wipe them away. I will not have it. He goes on to prove this with scriptural authority. He uses, again, not just any scripture, an Old Testament scripture, a story that they knew well. The story of Elijah is awesome. He's a prophet. He's sent to the nation by God in a time of of, of great tribulation. There's this king named Ahab. When I say Ahab, you should all go, boo. (laughs) He's like the worst of dudes. And uh, the Jews are rejecting him. They're they're worshiping this false god named Baal. All of this bad stuff is happening. They're persecuting Elijah's life. He runs away into the wilderness. And I picture him up against a tree having the, the temper tantrum, you know, where you like kick your legs. At least that's what my, I and my sisters all used to do. They like flick out like that. He's having this temper tantrum and he's saying to God, God, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that believes in you. I am all alone. And the people that you've called for me to try and preach to and bring the word to have rejected me and they want to take my life. And God's response is, I got 7,000 more just like you. You're not that special. <laughs> no, he's saying to them, you're not alone. In the midst of this, he's saying, I won't let this happen even if you mess it all up. Even if you give up and have your temper tantrum, I will have a remnant. God's going to get his way. One way or the other, with you or without you. This leads to some implications. He moves on and saying, okay, with this evidence that I've laid out, my personal testimony, the doctrinal truth, and the scriptural authority, because of these things, we can then assume this. In the same way, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Paul is saying, if there was a remnant then with Elijah in a really bad and dark time, there must be one today. Can we conclude that? The Old Testament had been teaching this all along, but it was misunderstood by the Jews. He's saying to the Jews, Paul is, you are special to God, but you don't get a special way to him. The only way to Christ is by grace, faith. For the Jew, for the Gentile, for anybody alike, there is but one way, that is him. And you think there's something other. You've created this religion within yourself that we are the Jews and we obey the law and that's how we get to heaven. That is not true. That is not grace. And it's by grace alone that we are saved. I want to point out two things for us today in regard to the implications that if Paul can make implications, so can I. 
The two things are this. We reject grace today in the same way. And to those of you that believe in the gospel, don't think you're excused from this point. And the second is this. There's still a remnant, even today. To the first point. Uh, we reject grace today. I think there's two phrases that we use in our language or, or in our society today that, man, are like a thorn in my side. I'm getting older, and stuff just agitates me more than it should. And the two statements are this. I guess one isn't a statement, more a thought. Because I've been around some death moments just recently within my ministry. And people will say this. They'll say, he's in a better place. You ever heard that? That in some way, people are justified by dying. And I say, well, explain that to me. And they say, well... For instance, this person is suffering from cancer and their pain is so um, immense that now that they're dead, they no longer have that pain so that they are like addition by subtraction in a better place. That is not true. That is not grace. That is not a free gift. That's just dying. I'll tell you this. Suffering in hell is far worse than suffering from cancer. I don't want to say that to offend anybody, but it is the truth. And it has to be shared. The second one that drives me nuts, oh, heaven helps those that helps themselves. This American kind of pull up your bootstrap, man, that junk is crap. Listen, heaven helps the, heaven helps the helpless. I cried in the first service and I do not want to cry now. Heaven helps those who realize they can't do this. That we, I'm in a sin, that my nature is evil and it's, it is very core. I do good things, but really I'm doing them for my own benefit at some level. I'm in a prison and I can't get out. Those are the people that heaven helps. That's grace. That is a free gift that I don't deserve, that I don't have to pay for, that is just offered to me. That is salvation. Heaven does not help those who help themselves. I don't get some merit from God by keeping my stinking room clean or paying my tax. Those are good things, but those are not righteous in the way that Jesus is righteous. It's a whole nother thing. As the scripture says, he is other. He is Kadesh. He is holy. He's not that kind of righteous. Whenever you think um, that God has given you anything by grace and then the next thing you say is because I, you don't understand grace. As Paul says, grace no longer is grace because of that. The Lord has been good to me. He's given this thing because he is good and freely gives to you and I. The second point, the remnant remains. This is important. I told you that I was studying the Reformation. So the Reformation is, is a cool point in history. And I think it's important for everybody to understand church history. It brings an elevation to just the life that you have and an appreciation for those who've gone before you. 1517, there was a, a man by the name of Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King. I'm, I'm talking about the OG Martin Luther. Uh, this is a long time ago. He's in Germany at a, at a monastery called the Wittenberg Monastery. He's a monk. And he's, he's, everybody's Catholic at this point in history. The Catholic Church has dominated the landscape of Western Europe, and they've determined that you become a better Christian by sacrifice, by paying penance, and by listening to the papacy or the priest at the front of the room. That the word of God is not given to anybody. It's illegal to have at this point in history. That you should trust what the priest says from the front of the room as if it's the word of God. 
Martin Luther, a monk, is struggling with his own conviction in sin, no matter how many times he prays and how many penance he pays and how much confession he does, he's still sinful and he knows it. One day he finds a Bible in an old tattered corner of a library in the Wittenberg Monastery and he reads it and he's praying to God from the word as he's paying his penance. He's crawling up the stairs to the monastery, bloodying his knees as a sign of his sacrifice to God for his sin and it dawns on him that there is nothing he can do that saves him but the grace of God. This explodes inside of him and as a response, Martin Luther was a little bit crazy and really brave. He writes 99 theses to the Catholic Church as their problem of their problems in theology. And he nails it to the, to the front door of the Wittenberg Church. And they read these theses and an outrage ensues from the political and religious government of the time. And in 1520, he stands, can we go to the next picture? He's called to what's called the Council of Worms. Isn't that a crazy place? Worms, Germany. He later goes on to call it the Diet of Worms. Uh, like I said, he was crazy. There's, there's Martin Luther there in the black robe. That's not a headband. That's his hair. That was the style of the time for the monks. To the left, up on the, the highest exalted one, is Charles V. The king and the religious leaders, the Catholic leaders of the United Church at the time, are all bearing in on Martin Luther. And they're saying, you have offended God by offending us. Do you recant on your writings? And he says, give me the night to think about it. And he goes home knowing that if he doesn't recant, he's facing death, most uh, probably, and most certainly he's facing an uh, uh, outcasting from the Catholic Church, which is basically everybody. As a response, he says, is anything that I've written not from the Word of God? He goes the next day, and this picture is, is painted, and he stands in front of the king and the priests, which I could go on and on about that. And he says this quote, my conscience is captive to the word of God and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither honest or safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. In the midst of darkness and tyranny, God had a spark that eventually lit up and it was willing to be that spark. Martin Luther was willing to be a light in the midst of darkness. He was a remnant in a time when it looked like Christianity was never going to survive. That the Catholic Church would just swallow it up as a whole. And he says that the word of God should be free for every man to read. He later translates it into German by himself. And he spends most of his life locked up in a high place uh, under a, a disguise so that the, the, the church leaders wouldn't find him and, and execute him. The word is freed, it's given to, to people, and, and they begin to embrace it and receive it, and they separate themselves, they're called separatists from the Catholic Church, and they begin to preach the word of God line by line, verse by verse, like we're doing today. Later in England, there's this lady named Bloody Mary, and she's going after all of these people that believe in Christ as he is from the word of God. And so they run away. They get on a boat called the Mayflower. They're called the Puritans. They go across the sea and land at Plymouth Rock. And our country was founded on those who believed in the word of God because of a spark in the midst of darkness. Man, if that doesn't fire you up, nothing will. Because of that story, I ask about this story. Is there a remnant today? shootings and racism and bombings and acts of terrorism. It's like every time we turn on the news, we just, like I said something to my sister the other day, and I could just feel the wind go out. Oh, another one. Again. 
evil and darkness is so overwhelming in this time and it's so free and public for access. Is there anything good in the world? Maybe there's a spark for this time in history. And maybe you should consider in your own soul, is there a spark in this very room that would set the church ablaze again? That she would be founded in the word of God, that she would preach the gospel to her community, that she would disciple those who come to faith, and that she would raise up a body of believers that aren't good by their actions, but they're good by the grace of God. That maybe say, like the biography that was written about Martin Luther and is infamously titled, Here I Stand. I have to do what God has asked me to do, even if it costs me my life. And finally, the conclusion. Maybe. Yes. Verse 7. He says, what then? Because of this evidence, because of these implications, what can we conclude? He says this. Israel is, what Israel has, is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. They were seeking their Messiah, and the Messiah called Jesus walked right in front of their face. And they rejected him. As a response, their hearts were hardened to him. But God, knowing his plans never going to fail, kept a remnant to believe in faith. The hearts were hardened is important. People get tripped up on this. Some have softened it in their translation, saying like they were deafened to it or they became stubborn. The word is epikineso, which is they literally hardened his heart. It means like the same thing they talked about Pharaoh. They hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord has done this as a response to their choice in not receiving grace. And finally, the Scripture. Scripture is uh, authoritative to you and I, but it was specifically authoritative to the Jews at the time. Their whole world was based on the words that Paul starts to recite to them. And essentially, he says to them, what, I, what you believe you know to be true, I'm telling you, you've misunderstood from the beginning. And he uses this scripture in a very strategic way. He talks about three different parts. One is the law, the law of God. The second is the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. And the third is the Psalms, the Psalms that they would sing and preach from, uh, from King David. He paraphrases all three of these scriptures to prove his point. He says this, whoa, I almost fell. Just as uh, it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see, uh, sorry, Eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. And David, that's King David, this is a psalm, Psalm 69. Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. He uses these scriptures to share with them out of Isaiah 29, Deuteronomy 29, and Isaiah 6 again. That God has given them an opportunity to receive grace. The Old Testament talks about it all along. We think the Old Testament wasn't about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. As much as the New Testament. But they received the teaching and rejected it. And then he uses this phrase that I want to step on a little bit, or really expound. He says in David, Let their table become a snare or a trap. Table. Could you imagine a table that's a trap? I picture like you reach to go grab the cookie and it like claps up on you. <laughs> He's not talking about that kind of trap. The table in the Old Testament always signified the provision of God. 
Think about Thanksgiving. Essentially what God does is he provides for us and he places it on a table and he invites us to the table to come and eat and drink and receive. And the Jews were invited to the table and their hardening or their, their rejection of the food, they pushed away from it. And Paul is saying there is a response. There's something that happens to your heart when you push away from the table. It becomes a trap for you. It hardens your heart. And the more you reject it, the more it hardens. Who, who's had this in their life? They've heard the gospel and they reject it because they're unsure. And then somebody comes again and now it's getting annoying. They reject it again. And now anybody that comes to try and preach or say anything to them, they feel like they have all this evidence and all of this assurity that they are right and everybody else is wrong. They shove people away. They won't receive grace. In fact, they won't even hear it. They were made to hear, but wouldn't. Just like receiving at the table, receiving grace does something to your heart. Rejecting it does something as well. And for the Jews, it became a trap. Your law and your prophets and your psalms have been saying this all along. They're warning you to not reject, and you did. Yet, there is another table in the Word of God that I want to reference for us. It's called the Table of Grace. There's this uh, story that I love in the scripture out of 2 Samuel. This guy's name is Meh Shib, or, sorry, Meh. <laughs> I practiced at home, and now it's all falling apart. Meh Fib O Sheth, Mephibosheth. It doesn't get a lot of play because it's a hard name to pronounce. It's not like Noah, Judah, something like that. Mephibosheth is a young man who is the son of Jonathan, former Jewish king. David is uh, given the kingdom of Israel by God. And it's taken away from Saul. Saul's son is named Jonathan. And Jonathan and David are tight, man. They're friends. As a result, Saul dies. Jonathan dies. And David is king. And he's saying, I wish there was some way to bless my friend Jonathan. I wish there was some way to exalt him. I wish there was something I could do for his namesake. And a servant comes to him and says, well, you know, there is a... Uh, a son that still is alive. He says, where? He says, he's in the street. When he was still a member of royalty, his servant fell, and, and when he was young, he broke both of his legs. And after he was thrown from the castle, he's a peasant, and he cannot walk. And he's just in the streets of Israel because he's no longer a member of the royalty of the kingdom, for you are. And David says, bring this crippled boy to me. And he says to the boy, from now on, you will sit next to me on my right hand side and you will eat every meal with me, the king. Come to the table of grace and have all that you want. Can't you see that Mephibosheth is you and I? Just a crippled person, totally broken, no way to help ourselves and we need a king to invite us to the table. And the Jews got invited and rejected away. I pray that you would not do that. Maybe you could say it like this. Next slide. Hebrews chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but receive what God has to give you in grace. Now, this is an easy thing to do when we put it up on a screen, but it's a hard thing to do in our heart because I think some of us still believe there's something in me that's good. There's something in me that can help the Lord. And I say, there is nothing. 
Those of you that are Christians, you get stuck in between two places. You want to reject grace. You want to say, Dad, I want to do it by myself in your flesh. But on the other side, you know that you need it. And so you're pinned in between these two areas. You know what we do when we're stuck here? We make contracts with God. God, if I do this, then you will give me. God, if I promise to never do this again, will you take this punishment away from me? We make these contracts as a way to find this middle ground. That is not grace. That is a hardening of your heart. That is a rejecting what's at the table of God. We're going to bring the worship team up and get ready for the offering. Here. God has not rejected the Jews. They rejected him. God has not rejected you and I, but to the man, you have rejected him. Unless you come and receive grace by faith. Do you really believe in grace? Why don't you come up? You guys can walk past me here. Is it amazing to you? Grace? As the great song says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, and now I see. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the offering. We pray that you give back to those that give to you, not as a recourse or some sort of that a boy, but Lord, because your word says that you'll take care of those who live by faith. Lord, I pray that those who give, give freely, give out of compulsion. Don't, don't give because they feel in some way responsible. Give because it's a joyous thing to do. We pray and believe these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're, as we take up our offering, I... I just want us to consider in our own hearts uh, what grace is to each of us. For some of you, you've known grace, but you feel like, man, I need to receive this at a greater level. This is what I'm going to do. They're going to sing this song. I pray that you would come to the front. We're going to open up the altar, not anything other than just a sign of faith. I'm trusting in God that as I move forward, um, I will sink my soul into faith in a greater, into grace in a deeper way. But for those of you that maybe never have received grace, I want to say to you here and now that the Lord offers this grace freely. You don't earn it. You can't deserve it. And He gives it to you because He loves you. And He wants you to be free from the bondage of sin. That is your nature. That's a cancer, a disease you've been in, in it was in your womb or in your mother's womb. And if you want to receive that grace for the first time today, no potion you drink, no food you eat, no, no religious thing that you do, you pray in your heart to the Lord himself, not to me. And you transfer your trust from yourself to God, not for a moment, not into, in one particular area, but with your whole life. You transfer it to him. And if that is you, I pray that you would pray that prayer and that you would tell somebody about it. Tell a church leader, be public. This is a good thing. As we say, this is good news. 
that is you and you say that prayer, I would love to hear from you and learn more about that. So let's stand to our feet. Let's, um, let's uh, sing this song in praise and I'll come back for the benediction. such a profound way. I pray that the light of his face would shine upon yours. And as a result, you would experience and receive a peace that you've never experienced before. I pray that you'd be bold in your faith. I pray that you'd have rest in your God. And I pray that you'd have a desire for the word. We can know these things and say these things because of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross and raised from the dead. For there is no other reason to be here than him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to continue to sing this song. If you want to come to the altar and receive prayer, you're welcome to do so. But if not, we hope you have a wonderful and blessed rest of your week. Thanks so much.
Yeah. Uh-huh. 